0: Today on CityCast Chicago In the lead up to Brandon Johnson's Inauguration next month as the 57th Mayor of Chicago, a lot of attention Has been paid to public schools and police But there are other pressing issues Facing the city that Johnson will need to tackle Pretty early. The CityCast team Takes a closer look at what the new mayor needs To do about transportation Public health and the environment It's Tuesday April 11th, I'm Jacoby Cochran and this is what Chicago's talking about Obviously, we talked a lot about election season being over, but the minute that happens, we actually got to get into governance. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that Brandon Johnson and the new city council are going to have to focus on when they get in. CTA, deservedly so, gets a lot of attention in here. It's a public transit network used by hundreds of thousands of people uh, every single year. But there have been concerns over the last few years in terms of crumbling infrastructure. Ridership has been down since the pandemic. You have an increase of what people feel like is unsafe conditions when riding the CTA, when uh, when waiting for CTA. And the concern and the question people have been asking is, what is the future of Dorval Carter? Kerry, uh, you still use CTA? Pretty much every week, I believe you heading into the WeWork, you use it sort of just in your daily life. Um, How do you see Brandon Johnson sort of coming out the gate looking at transportation holistically?
1: Yeah, I um I use it far less often than I used to. I used to rely on it absolutely every day, like many people. And obviously, uh, that, there was a huge shift when so many of us were uh, working from home in 2020 and even into 2021. And, you know, Jacoby, we work from home now. But as you mentioned, I enjoy not working from home. So <laughs> I rent a space, uh, <laughs> a co-working space. So I was surprised, or I suppose I am surprised, that Uh, Brandon Johnson didn't explicitly say he would replace current CTA head Dorval Carter. Mm -hmm. Um, He did say in a couple debates that there's a leadership problem there, but wouldn't go as so far as to say, like, he's gone, which is strategic. Probably he probably wants to get in and see what the real problems are. But the reality is that the uh, regional transportation agency chairman. Kirk Dillard has said that there's going to be a mass transit funding cliff, Mm -hmm. which means that the CTA, the Metro, the commuter rail line, and, you know, which you use in the city, Mm -hmm. PACE, which is a suburban uh, public transit bus system, there will be like $730 million short, he said, of operating funds that they need by 2025. So. What does this mean for the rider? That always comes down to, will there be a fair hike? There's always talk of, like, will it cost me more to ride public transit? And that's going to be a very hard sell if you feel like your bus doesn't arrive. Uh These ghost buses doesn't arrive on time. You feel like the trains aren't safe or clean. You feel like there's people smoking on them and you have to keep moving cars to get away from that. All these sorts of issues, and you know, that people that are making people really have a problem with public transit right now. So, I don't know how they're gonna fill that budget hole, that budget gap, and that's something that Johnson's gonna have to face pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, I'm interested to see what kind of strategies are implemented because Johnson has focused on some of the infrastructure issues, right? He, he talked about wanting to implement more bus priority in terms of like transit signal priority to make sure uh bus lanes are protected. He wanted to make sure there are more CTA running, including for, for late evening. But I do wonder how you're going to tackle, like you, you say sort of how people feel when they're on the train. And as somebody who who rides Metro rides the CTA, One of the major differences that I see is because Metra uh, has conductors on the train, there's sort of always this Hmm. presence of Metra. But when we talk about a CTA, there's sort of been this... This pushback of, well, what would that mean for the trains? Right. You have somebody on the bus and, you know, that does, they, the people who are driving the bus don't feel safe. And, and so I wonder how he negotiates right. that, because he hasn't said he's against adding security to to buses and trains, adding cameras, but but didn't really sort of make that clear what uh, sort of the plan is for that. And it's somebody who doesn't and didn't like to see more uh, sort of green jackets, right? Those sort of those sort of security individuals, less
1: private security roaming around the blue line,
0: seeing dogs and and wondering sort of what is this providing any deterrence? How, how do we make structural changes? Um, I, I wonder how he prioritizes that, uh, coming in, uh, activists and transit advocates want to make sure that we're not just talking about public transportation though. Like, so what's going to happen with buses, what's going to happen with trains. Uh, They also want to make sure we're we're thinking about how do we make the city more walkable? How do we make the city more bike friendly? And that is something that Johnson also focused on uh, during his campaign and people could see on his website. You know, he talked about how do we provide protection to all bike lanes around the city. He talked about wanting to reduce speed limits, While at the same time saying he wanted to maybe take down some of those speed cameras. And and so I'm interested again to see, you know, sort of how do we we balance those two things? Because most people have acknowledged that those speed cameras, you do see some shifts around how fast people are going around there, maybe some reduction of accidents. But people also know it's a metric for revenue for the city. Uh, And so are we having both conversations at the same time? Because if you don't want to, we don't want to just be nicking people, right? These little petty fines and fees, uh, because we know who that largely and disproportionately impacts. And I wonder as we sort of get into his administration, like sort of where the line gets drawn on that.
1: These are somewhat conflicting points of view, right? A lot of bike transit advocates say, no, actually the speed cameras have been really good for us. Mm-hmm. They have, just think about it. Think if you're going X speed and you hit and you hit a biker, a car hits a biker. Now reduce that by 25 miles per hour or whatever. It's completely different. It's life and death, right? As someone who gets absolutely nicked by the speed camera, <laughs> But who I do feel like I'm much more aware of my speed now. I know where the cameras are. So you can start to sort of be like, okay, yeah, I always go through this intersection at Western. I'm going to be more careful here. But I'm just also more aware because Mm -hmm. there's a like thirty five like going. So it's you know, you get a ticket if you're going six miles per hour over 35 miles per hour and 36 miles per hour don't feel much different, but you are, at least you're forcing yourself to engage and be more aware. Johnson also actually said that we need more protected bike lanes, mm-hmm. which is like he's saying we need concrete barriers that protect lanes, the bike lanes from cars and traffic. So much of Chicago, you have these bike lanes that are also where people are walking and as we know, so many delivery trucks are parked and blocking. Mm-hmm. This is where people get doored. Like cars are opening their doors here. And so if you are a commuter by bike, you know, which is more affordable, which is better for the environment, is all these things, you deserve to be safe too, just yeah. like pedestrians and like you said, people who ride public transit, but also we just to not be such a car culture and mm-hmm. not be so reliant on people who just commute by car.
0: What I'm gonna be looking for is even from our conversation with Johnson, there were some things that he said he wanted to do immediately in terms of uh, improving projects or approving and continuing projects that would make sure that bus lanes get priority, both in the way that they're designed, they're painted on the street, the way they're designated, as well as the the transit signs, but also sort of in Like, as you said, improving protected bike lanes, more concrete bike lanes around the city. I'm going to be watching to see how fast those projects move. Yeah. Because the last administration promised similar upgrades as well. (laughs) In a debate in March, Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis were asked, what is their plan moving forward in terms of the leader of the Chicago Department of Public Health, Allison Arwoody? Uh, Paul Vallis said that he wanted to work with, wanted to keep Allison Arwoody on. And Brandon Johnson said very clearly that he does not plan to keep the commissioner on uh who has been here who was has been in the Chicago Department of Public Health since i think 2015 who then became the leader of the Chicago Department of Public Health i believe like right before the pandemic really yeah like 2019 blew up, yeah right at the yeah. end of 2019 right. beginning of 2020 and so, moving forward, it is likely that one of his appointments early on will be a new commissioner, Chicago Department of Public Health. You know, we sat down with Doctor. Allison Arwady. We we've given the sort of benefit of the times. doubt yeah, for leading times. this city through the the pandemic thus far. What is Brandon Johnson and his team said thus far as why he doesn't align with uh, the commissioner?
1: So far as I can, is what I glean from his, you know, his comments in that uh, in that debate, which were fairly minimal, he didn't they didn't really give him an opportunity to really dive into why he wants to replace her. The sort of tagline has been because If we all remember, Rahm Emanuel closed six of the city's 12 mental health clinics. And Mm -hmm. Mayor Lightfoot said on her when she was running in 2019, I'm going to reopen those. I'm going to reopen those. Because as we see with a lot of these closures, like with school closures, these disproportionately, you know, affect people in black and brown communities that have seen disinvestment from the city. And she didn't reopen them. And Johnson accredits that to CDPH, Chicago Department of Public Health, head Allison Arwoody. Now, my thought a little bit when I dig into this and read more about it is that you didn't reopen these mental health clinics becomes a bit of a tagline. The Progressive Caucus in City Council was big on this, but what Arwoody says is she sort of put together sources of state federal funding, city funding to provide more care. And, you know, says that like in 2020 or 2021, you know, something like five times as many residents receive care. Well, one, one might say we were right. in a pandemic. Probably more people needed mental health care. Kids were at home from school. People were losing their jobs or there were a myriad of issues. But it's also somewhat of this approach that sort of public health departments, it's not really their job to provide direct patient care. It's their job to overall surveil trends, to prevention, to, you know, God forbid we have another pandemic. It's them that they need to sort of shape policy and they're not supposed to be so much directly involved in patient care. So I would say also we would be remiss, I think, if we didn't mention that Brandon Johnson might have some ill will towards R. Woody because she was on the other side of the table when the teachers union didn't want to reopen schools, CPS, in 2022. R. Woody and the mayor were saying, no, it's time. Kids have to go back. So they had a difference of opinions back then. So that might be affecting what he's saying about whether he wants to keep her around.
0: Mm-hmm. I do want to say, you know, having like read up with all person Rosanna Rodriguez, who's been a mm-hmm. uh, sort of hugely critical of Dr. Allison Arwoody. As I look more into the sort of why behind that, I understand that the CTU, the Chicago Department of Public Health didn't always agree, but I do think, you know, Brandon Johnson's organizing background, you know, really does in line with how do we strengthen public goods and the network of sort of public and private funded healthcare centers and, and clinics really does sort of end up being a neoliberal approach that really sort of takes the impetus and the responsibility away from the city to provide this resource and starts to over rely on uh, sort of the private healthcare system and
1: contractors I, yeah, that the and, city pays. And yeah,
0: and I'd argue that 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 system, you know, that even all the person Rosanna Rodriguez, and I don't want to speak for her, but that system can work in connection with the sort of robust, heavily funded public system. Because what ends up happening is, you know, same when we talk about public schools, you see this divestment away from public mental health care centers, then the criticism starts and say, well, they're not providing resources. They're not doing enough. Then you close them, right? Then the pressure on that last six sort of grows and grows and grows to the point where say, well, is this doing enough? Because the system we have now is one that ultimately disadvantages those uh, city-funded and city-run centers. And so what Johnson is arguing is that if he reopens six, provides them with the resources they need but then maybe grow that system that we're we're sort of balancing out the responsibility between the public and the private versus what we see right now is this uh, you know sort of overwhelming uh, reliance on on you know sort of the privatization of of healthcare in this city and, and at large
1: i think you're saying more a uh, more holistic approach right mm-hmm. like maybe it's not either or Maybe there's taking, diverting some of that funding from whatever the whatever she calls what it's currently called sort of these trauma-informed centers of yeah. care.
0: And some of the grant money to the city, that goes there. Yeah. Uh, honestly, when we get into the where is the city going to get the money, that's always the question. Uh, and, yeah, you know, course. every candidate, you know, sort of makes these promises of what they're going to do. At, at the end of the day, I, I do think that the, the money Exists right, it, it's out there. It really comes down to what do we prioritize? Where do we want to see our money go? And you know, 56 million for you know shuttered mental health centers against you know a 1.96 billion dollar police budget. People will always say, Well, I think I know where 56 million dollars is. Right. I know where we could mm-hmm. probably find mm-hmm. 50 million dollars. But the, then the question becomes, yes, where does that money come from? And, and so, you know, we'll see how Johnson moves forward. But it does seem like even more than than Lightfoot, who was able to run on these tenants, but didn't actually have a background in maybe supporting these. Right. These were sort of more campaign promises and idea than even Johnson, who, you know, he has a track record of being on the the bullhorn advocating for these ideas. So I think it will be even more disappointing if there these promises aren't delivered on this time around uh, for individuals. But I do agree with you. I we're always going to wonder over the next four years, and maybe the contract negotiations will illuminate a little bit more of how this relationship is going to work. But I do think it probably is fair, right? Because if this was any other sort of lobbying position, we'd be like, okay, what do you, you know, w- what do you owe? This organization, and so so I I don't think it's unfair to continuously ask, but you know that question is going to come up time and time again. But but I I do want to be clear: I don't
1: think that's driving all of it. Just so I I so I make I I don't think that's driving everything. I think there are bigger questions of sort of yeah funding for these mental. I I guess the bigger when I talk to public health folks, they say sort of the top line everybody hears is like they shuttered clinics. Mm-hmm instead of asking the necessary but more important follow up question of like where is the care what kind of care is being provided now what kind of care do we there's still a gap mm-hmm.
0: Now, of all the issues we're discussing today, I think this last one has probably gotten the least amount of attention during campaign season. Mm -hmm. And that is Chicago's environment. Right. How do we continue to protect neighborhoods that deal with air pollution? How do we protect neighborhoods that are still sort of dealing with the consequences of industry, both industry leaving and industry being there and proliferating for decades upon decade? Uh, And Brandon Johnson talked a lot uh, throughout his campaign about wanting to bring back Chicago's Department of Environment, which, similar to some of the mental health care centers, uh, this was eliminated during the Rahm Emanuel administration. Uh, And it was said that it was a budget decision, that it would save the city about $3.6 million, mostly through layoffs. Then Mayor Lightfoot ran on the campaign promise of bringing back the Department of Environment, ultimately did not deliver on that. Uh, And now we're here. Since the Department of Environment was disbanded, uh, a guest who we had on a few months ago wrote this this great article that said environmental violations fail by 50 percent and air quality citations fail by Mm -hmm. 90 percent. With the implication being that, well, without the Department of Environment sort of enforcing, trying to hold companies, uh, industry accountable in this city, uh, that sort of it's been a little bit easier to get by uh, in terms of business as usual. Right. And and I wonder if as we've had these environmental justice wins over the last few years, right, as we see advocacy growing to not move manufacturing plants to historically black and brown neighborhoods, if maybe some people's eye has sort of gotten off the ball in the fact that the city still doesn't have one central department focusing on ways to not only hold companies accountable, but start planning and being innovative about what this city faces when we think about the consequences of climate change moving forward. Carrie, we've covered this a lot over the show, right? Uh, do you think we're, mm-hmm. we, we've heard enough about how a Department of Environment will work against some of that?
1: Not really. And, you know, I think you raise a really good point of like, when you don't have a centralized office to, you know, herald these changes, but also really push and fight for them and advocate for them. Instead, your sort of new businesses get with the general iron, the metal shredder that was supposed to move to the southeast side. That gets pushed to the law department because mm-hmm. Lightfoot's, you know, she she blocked them. She blocked her administration, blocked them from moving. So that gets pushed there. It also gets pushed to the public health department who she relies on. Dr. Allison Arwoody to say, no, no, this is bad for air quality here. It also just gets pushed to all the business development folks, right? Yeah. So it doesn't, you don't really have, when I hear that number of three point whatever, whatever it's saved, like, it just seems like such chump change compared to some other departments. No, um, for,
0: for sure. I feel like <laughs> Chicago was like $2 million or something just, just to print those cans. But but the point you make, I think. <laughs> Chicago. The. Yeah. When I I was reading the the Cranes report that came out in October of 2011 that talked about the Department of Environment being closed down, and it said things like clean vehicles initiative will go to the Transportation Department. Utility bill assistance will go to the Department of Family and Support Services. Water policy goes to the Department of Water Management, which, when you just do sort of like the elementary school, like, match this with the department that it makes sense going to, right, it makes sense on paper, but then when you get into it, there was an advocate who says, but... Are those departments interested in the innovation needed to really think right. about how right. do we help right. families that are on payment plans to, to pay their water? Do, does that does the transportation department, right? Think about what we just talked about. Do they have enough initiative, enough people on staff, enough resources to also be thinking about clean vehicles? Right. And so the the question now becomes: well, if we're gonna bring the Department of Environment back, Does that mean we're pulling these responsibilities away? So I have no idea what the logistics behind putting together a Department of Environment will look like. I imagine it's going to cost a lot more than than nearly $4 million.
1: Right. But (laughs) it
0: it, it does seem like a necessary element of governance. Someone who is focused on these, these critical issues, especially as we're continuing to deal with Lead in our water, which I'm gonna always talk about, right? Record levels of pollution that impact the people who live here, but also neighboring states.
1: The climate plan, uh, exactly. Mayor Lightfoot had like a whole had laid out this whole climate plan that like we sort of dipped our toes in here and there. But to your point, like you said, who's keeping track of all these violations? activists, frankly, activists, many of whom we've had on CityCast Chicago, they're the ones who are actually FOIAing or getting the public data and saying, wait Mm -hmm. a second, what happened with this, this, and this? And to your point, city departments, state departments, federal departments, even the private sector in many ways, there's always going to be this, like, we don't have enough people, you're giving us more to do with less. So if you're just diverting those tasks, like you say, to other city departments, I'm sure that that's their response, right? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I'm trying to get bike lanes and I'm trying to protect Milwaukee Avenue bike lanes. I don't <laughs> have time or space for this. So it will be interesting to see who Johnson brings on in his transition team for all of these departments. But this one as well, to see kind of how he's going to talk about the environment and approach it in his. Those are usually, I mean, those are somewhat of a good indication, they're trans- who they put on their transition teams, it's a it's a sort of a start to be a peek into how they're going to shape their administration. So he should be doing that soon. So it'd be interesting to see.
0: Yeah. I, if I had to put my money on it, Dorval Carter, a holdover from the Emanuel administration, I don't think he stays around. Dr. Allison <laughs> Arwoody started her time with the Chicago Department of Public Health during the Emanuel administration, promoted under Lightfoot I don't think she's going to stick around. And the Department of Environment, if it is reinstated, would obviously have a new leader. And so those will be the early moves in the Johnson administration and some of the early indications of how he hopes to see these departments led uh, in the future. And so thank you to lead producer Carrie Shepard for joining me to talk everything, uh, trains, planes and vaccinations and air pollution, you know, all the, all the things this morning.
1: Thanks, Jacoby. Appreciate it.
0: Before I let you go, some good news to get you through. Uh, the weather sort of picking up is coming just at the right time because Art on the Mart is back this Friday at 8.30 p.m. with Funtime Unicorn. Ruby Rise through four seasons. If you're not familiar with what Art on the Mart is, downtown Merchandise Mart, an entire projection show across the building. Uh, so make sure you add it to your calendar this spring and summer season. Uh, as always, check out our daily newsletter, Hey Chicago, at chicago.citycast.fm, and I will talk to you bright and early tomorrow. Peace.